Let me invite you to make your way back to your seat and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 14, as we continue our study of this wonderful book uh, of the Acts of the Apostles as we have started this summer. It's been an exciting study so far, has it not, to see the Spirit of God fall down on the church and see how the Lord is blessing the church, adding to their number, living in this beautiful gospel of grace together, sharing life together in community with one another. And even as we saw last week, as Pastor Matt showed us, anytime we're experiencing such things, it's inevitable that opposition is going to arise, and it did. Last week, we saw that opposition from the outside, where the apostles were told to stop preaching the name of Jesus, and they would say, can't do that. Okay, as long as we agree to stop preaching, can't do that. Okay, glad we understand each other, not going to do that. Opposition continued to come. But friends, we have even a different picture of opposition today, because the opposition that we're going to see this morning from this text is opposition on the inside of the community, the inside of the community by a, a couple. So we ask ourselves the question, what do we do in response to that? And I want us to ask ourselves that question, but I want to ask another question too. What does God promise that he is going to do in response to that? That is a very uh, valuable question to ask, as we will soon find out as we give our our attention to the reading and the preaching of His Word. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Friends, this is the Word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said uh, any of the things that belonged to Him was His own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed as each had a need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, A native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's full knowledge, they kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart so that you have lied not to man, but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out, and they buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, 
they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came on the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared even join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, thank you that you speak to us. Today, you speak to us by the power of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. So open our eyes to behold beautiful things today, Father. Beautiful things of what it is that you are giving us by your great grace, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. Before I was hired as a firefighter paramedic in the city of Louisville in North Texas, I actually was hired on as a 911 operator in communications. I was a dispatcher and a 911 operator actually even before 911. That's how long ago. They actually had to dial seven digits to get uh, to me, but that's beside the point. I was a dispatcher and also served as a volunteer fire, uh, fireman. The, the department was small enough that they still, we still utilized volunteers in such a way. And so I was a, a volunteer in hopes of gaining a lot of experience, but also in networking with other individuals that I hope someday I would soon be working with. I had a dear friend named Thomas, not his real name, but I'll call him Thomas, who worked uh, in the volunteer fire department as well. He and I shared a lot of calls together, working side by side, because Thomas always responded to such calls. As a dispatcher, we went through this stretch one summer where we had lots and lots of grass fires. It seemed like every, every shift, I was toning out an engine of paid firemen to go protect uh, surroundings, while then I would bump out all of the volunteers to come to the station and pick up the grass trucks and take them out to the scene and extinguish the fire. Thomas always seemed to be one of the first ones that would get to the station to get on the grass truck, or if he didn't, He would drive straight to the scene in his own vehicle, and then he would be there when the first grass truck arrived. This kept happening over and over. One day, one of the guys left the department and went to work for another department, and so they were looking for uh, someone to replace this individual. They were going to hire one person. So I put my name in, as did Thomas and some of the other volunteers, And after the the written test was done, and after the physical agility test was done, Thomas was first, I was second, and there was a string of other individuals behind us. But even second, I mean, that's pretty good, right, for a little guy like me? But even second, I was kind of bummed. I'm going to have to go sit back in that dispatcher seat for a while until somebody else leaves uh, and they hire another individual. Well, one particular day, one of the captains came into the dispatch office sitting behind my console, and he said, hey, Bryant, congratulations, man, good news. And I said, about what? And he said, you haven't heard? No, you're the man, you're number one. I said, I'm number one? What happened to Thomas? And he said, you haven't heard? I said, no, Thomas was arrested last night because he's been starting all of the grass fires. Yeah, that was the, first, that was the same response in the first service, too. 
And it's a true story, a true story. I was, I was confessing my sin to Victor. I was kind of excited about that because I got the job. <laughs> Uh, and we, hadn't, we didn't burn any houses or anything. It was just grass. So. But isn't that a beautiful picture, friends, of this right here? A beautiful picture of what it is that we just read. That there can be this, this picture on the outside that is quite different from the picture that's lived out on the inside. That we can live life fooling everybody else or thinking that we're fooling everybody else while on the inside we are gripped by the love for self, the love for the affection of others, love for money, love for any and everything else. And we can convince everybody else that we are this way when we are really that way. And such is the case in our text this morning because this really is a contrast, a contrast between those who are unreservedly devoted to to the Savior and those who are reservedly devoted. They will give, but they will only give in part. They will give only what they want to give, and they'll give it the way they want to give it instead of this unreserved devotion to a Savior who has given us everything. Luke repeats that, that contrast, by repeating the word great. In chapter 4, verse 33, you'll see that he said, great grace Great grace came upon the church because Christ was present. He had descended in the form of the dove in the work of the Holy Spirit, and he was filling and changing lives, transforming individuals with this glorious gospel that we have been reading through the first few chapters of this book. Great grace came great growth. You'll remember back in chapter 1, there were 120 individuals Then Peter preached his sermon in chapter 2, and 3,120 individuals made up the church. Pastor Matt told us in chapter 4 last week, 5,000 men were now in the church, meaning men, women, and children, upwards of about 15 to 20,000 individuals now are part of this church. In chapter 5, verse 14, our last text in our passage this morning says, Now great multitudes... Multitudes of believers, of men and women, were coming savingly to the church. Great grace. But in the midst of great grace, even as we saw last week, there is always the threat of opposition. And opposition comes now from the inside instead of just the outside. Bringing about the second great that Luke repeats for us now. In chapter 5, verse 5, and in verse 11, he says, now great fear has come on the church. Great fear because of a reserved devotion instead of an unreserved devotion. Great fear because of hypocrisy that's lived out in the church, inside the church. How do we respond to that? Friends, listen very carefully. We respond to that by giving our attention today at looking how God responds to this. That God has promised to prepare for himself a people, to purify for himself a people. He sent his son, even as we read by Paul in Ephesians, to present us without without spot or wrinkle. And so God steps up and does something because he loves the church, his bride, too much to allow us to continue in our opposition, but directs us to this unreserved devotion that he has supplied for us in his son, found only in the gospel. 
So let's look at this comparison. The first one begins now with all of the believers. Look at what we read in verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full number of all who believed. So this is everyone, everyone upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people now. Everyone who believed gathered together, and what did they do? They brought the, they didn't say any of the belongings were their own, but they gave them to take care of the community. They, they loved one another. They had an unreserved devotion for God, and now an unreserved devotion for one another. They began to take care of one another. It's as if the words jump off of the page at how tangible it is that God is dwelling present among his people. The power of the Spirit has descended on them, and now it is tangible to the watching world around them and to themselves on the inside. God is here, and God is at work. And we see that great grace now lived out in three ways that that Luke identifies for us. First, he, he gives us this picture of their unity. They were one in heart and in soul. Now, this doesn't mean that there wasn't differences or divisions, but in their core, they were absolutely unified together. That's why he says heart and soul. This is the central thing. They were all in for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we'll read in a moment that the apostles were testifying to the power of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what they believed together. That's what bound them together and made them one, one body. They were sharing in this gospel. No other name under heaven by which mankind, humankind can be saved than the name of Jesus. They were sharing in this unity. But they were also marked by their generosity. Nobody said that anything that they owned, even though they owned it, was their own. But they brought it all, they sold things, brought the proceeds, they laid them at the apostles' feet. Why? For the purpose of taking care of one another, taking care of the needy. Now, friends, that that was in this church that is upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people. You see, we would normally stop and say, we could easily do that if we were a body of about 100. We could share everything in common if we were about 100. But now Redeemer Church is a a church of close to 1,000. Well, we're small compared to this church. This is fifteen to 20,000. And by great grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were doing it. And it is a command for us then as well. Something that we set our eyes on. Because we are unified together, now we're generous. But make no mistake, this is not a picture of Christian communism. We'll get to that here in just a moment in chapter 5, where where Peter says to, to Ananias, the property was yours, you owned it, right? And even when you sold it, all of the proceeds were still yours before you gave them away, right? So he, he, he clearly tells us this is not a picture of communism, but a picture of our generosity with one another. Because of our unreserved devotion to Christ, I'm unreservedly devoted to my brother and sister in Christ. So, they were unified. They were generous. And then thirdly, this mark of great grace was their testimony. The testimony, it says, of the, of the apostles preaching the powerful resurrection of Jesus. But listen, friends, that preaching didn't fall on deaf ears. 
that preaching fell on ears that were itching to hear of the beauty of this gospel because they were ready to be transformed by that such that this would be their testimony as well. That's the tangible great grace that is at work. When the apostles preached the word, they sat under that word and they soaked it up like a sponge to the point that they then in turn lived it out in the community in which they lived. This is why, friends, at the center of any gospel-believing church must, must be the power and the preaching of the Word. Not storytelling, not joke-telling, but unleashing the power that is ours right here in this book that He gives to us and accompanies by His Spirit to seal to us that we itch to hear more of it because we desire to be more and more like our Savior. That's what marked all of the believers, these beautiful great grace marks of unity and generosity and testimony. But then Luke moves to an individual. He's setting up this contrast now, showing the whole body, and now he focuses on one individual, Joseph, who the, whom the apostles changed his name to Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We're introduced to Barnabas here for the very first time in the book, but it's not going to be the last time that we hear about Barnabas. We'll read about him again in chapter 9. When this guy named Saul of Tarsus had this remarkable come-to-Jesus moment, and somebody needed to go get him and bring him back to the apostles, and who's going to go? <laughs> not me. Everybody's like, not me. I'm, I'm terrified of that guy. He persecuted the church. Barnabas. I'll go get him. I'll bring him to the apostles. And then we'll read about him again in chapter 11. Somebody needs to go to the church in Antioch where they were first called Christians. Nobody wants to go. Why? Because the Antioch church was filled with Gentiles. Nobody wants to go. Barnabas, I'll go. Barnabas goes to Antioch. Chapter 12, 13 and 14. Barnabas accompanies the apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. Chapter 15. Barnabas attends the, the Jerusalem council, and then at the end of chapter 15, he comes to Paul, Barnabas comes to Paul and says, hey, we need to take John Mark with us on the second missionary journey. And Paul says, absolutely not. He abandoned us on the first journey. We're not taking him on the second journey. And here, Barnabas, a love for the underdog. We got to take him to the point that they even split Barnabas and Paul go separate ways. Is it any, any surprise then that this reputation that we eventually hear is not already seen in the life that Barnabas is living out before the apostles? The apostles change his name because they see it. What's coming from the inside is what we're seeing on the outside. He had a reputation of being unreservedly devoted to the Savior. And he sold a piece of property. He brought it to the apostles. He laid it at their feet because he had an unreserved love and affection for these 18, 15, 20,000, however many people that made up his church. Now, that's a beautiful picture of what it is that God has done for us by great grace, what he promises to do for us today. Continue in that grace, great grace of lavishing that upon us. But now we move to chapter 5, and we find an, a couple, a couple who now want the praise that Barnabas got, 
but they don't want to pay the price to get that praise. They don't want to do the extreme of what it is that Barnabas has done. They just want to get all the benefits. And we're like that many times, aren't we? We want all of the benefits that, that, that God in his gospel will give to us. Give me more grace, more grace, more blessing, more blessing. But don't ask me to do my complete part. Don't ask me to give everything because I'm going to hold on to this little thing back here. You can have all of this, but I'm going to hold on to this. We will give part instead of giving all, which is nothing less than a reserve devotion by clinging to things that we want. And that's the picture that we find. That's why this is the contrast. And it begins chapter 5 with the word but. That Greek word could also be translated now, as some translations do. But I think the word but is better translated that way because it shows the, it shows the contrast between the believers in Barnabas and now this one couple, this one couple, Ananias and Sapphira. But I want you to look at this account, friends. Look at the beginning of, of chapter 5. Peter is asking questions, no doubt. Peter has been given discernment by the Lord to know that something is up here with this one couple. But Peter is given discernment, but nowhere in this passage do we read that Peter was given the power to bring judgment against Ananias and Sapphira. God is the one who brings judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. Not Peter, but God. And the account of verses 1 through 6 with Ananias, and then 7 through 11 with uh, Sapphira, his wife, two times now Luke writes, great fear has come on them. Now he's explaining why we have gone from great grace to great fear, because God is going to pour out his judgment. But the difference between Ananias and Sapphira is very, very slim, very small, isn't it? But make no mistake, it's there. Peter speaks with Ananias, not knowing what the Lord is going to do, right? He just knows something is up, and so he's questioning Ananias, but then all of a sudden, Ananias falls down dead. And so when Sapphira comes in, knowing what has happened to her husband, she doesn't know, but Peter does because he's seen what God has done. Peter now gives her the opportunity to repent. Did you really get this much for the land? Yes, we really got that much for the land. He gave her an opportunity to repent. Now, friends, listen, is this judgment from God that's eternal? I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, Uzzah that reached out and stops the ark from falling off, off the wagon in 2 Samuel, and he's struck down dead. Just, is that eternal judgment? I don't know. Is this eternal judgment? I don't know, but this I do know. He gives Sapphira the opportunity to repent, and now today through the preaching of the word, he gives us an opportunity to repent as well. That we can look deep in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives and see that if what I'm saying is on the inside is actually what I'm living on the outside. And by living just something fake on the outside for you to see, by harboring all of these things on the inside that you don't see, thinking that I have fooled you, or better yet, thinking that I have fooled him. He gives us. Today is a day filled with grace because a day is a day of repentance for people like us. He gives her the opportunity to repent, and she doesn't repent. But I got to tell you, too, this, this is still a hard account for me in that way, but in this way as well. 
Ananias and Sapphira did give some of their portion, didn't they? And it had to be a big portion. They would have never fooled fifteen to 20,000 people by giving a small portion because the people would say, there is no way in this market today you sold that. <laughs> yeah, no. They're going to know that, uh, that we're in a bidding war here and somebody's going to give you even more money. And so they would have had to have given a large amount of money but still they withheld it. But they gave some, right? People's needs were met because they gave some. So what's the big deal? I mean, okay, it was his to start with. It was his after he sold it. But what's the big deal? He still did a good thing, and lives were changed because of this good thing. Well, let me give you four things I think is what we should pick up and take away from this. And the first is this, this, what the text reveals to us is that Ananias and Sapphira had a deep love for money, and they wanted to cling to that money. Now, there's nothing wrong with money, but the love of money is what we should be fearful of. We've read that. They loved money and they clung to it. When they said that they were selling the land, they saw the proceeds before them and they couldn't give it all away. They loved it so much that they had to say, I'm going to keep back. That's verse 2. I'm going to keep back that portion. Peter in the very next verse, verse 3 says, Ananias, why have you kept back? Same Greek word used there in this account, and it is the Greek word that is never used again in all of the entirety of the New Testament. Keep back. Never used again in the New Testament. In the Old Testament Hebrew that was translated into Greek called the Septuagint, this same Greek word appears one time in Joshua 7 where they have surrounded, the Israelites have surrounded the walls of Jericho. They've gone around and around and around. The walls have come tumbling down. And Joshua says, now go in and get the plunder and the devoted things. But nobody is to keep back anything for himself. And they all run in. And what does Achan do? He grabs some of the devoted things. He keeps it back for himself. He puts it in his tent under his pad. And judgment falls on the Israelites. Jacob says to a few guys, go down to Ai and handle this problem. They go down and they are wiped out. And now Jacob is confronted with judgment from God is coming among the Israelites. What is going on? Long story short, they unpack the entire thing until Achan is revealed to have kept back some of the devoted things. Same Greek word used there, Joshua 7, as is used here in Acts chapter 5. He kept back. He kept back because he loved it so much, he couldn't let it go. Love for money. Secondly, don't be confused here, friends, that they had a love for the praise of man. And don't we all at many times, don't we all at many times just seek the desire, of the, the, the affection of other individuals to build us up? That's what they wanted. They saw how the people had responded to Barnabas, and they wanted that. They wanted that same thing, but unwilling to pay the price for it. They would give part, but they wouldn't give it all. And yet they wanted the praise of man. Third, they gave up on truth. They gave up on truth. Verse 4 of chapter 5 
when Peter says, why have you lied? You haven't lied to men. You have lied to God. You have given up. You have abandoned the truth. And you have brought a lie by trying to tell everybody that you are bringing the full fullness of the, the sale of the property when in, in, in reality you are not. Why have you lied? And then lastly, they discredited the Holy Spirit. He says it twice there, once to Ananias and once to Sapphira. In, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 5, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to, to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says the same thing to Sapphira, or to Sapphira in verse 8. Tell me whether this was what you sold it for. Yes, it's what I sold it for. And Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit, to lie to the Holy Spirit? They discredited the Holy Spirit in this way, friends. They didn't believe that the Spirit was powerful enough to do anything or even present to hear their scheming, their collusion, and their conniving. They didn't think that the Spirit was there. Even after, from chapter 1, we have seen the powerful Spirit descend on them. Ananias and Sapphira discredit the Holy Spirit's existence to even see and hear their lie. And so judgment comes. Judgment comes on a people, a couple, because God says, I am going to purify my people. I love my people too much to allow them to continue. And so God brings judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. And look what happens now. Great fear at the end of Ananias' account in verse 5. Great fear came on those who heard about Ananias' death. And then great fear, verse 11, comes on the whole church now at Sapphira's death. word church there is ecclesia, first time it's used in uh, the book of Acts. Now great fear comes on the entire church as well as individuals, but the entire church, this large body now, this passage, friends, then is a warning for people like you and me inside the church to search and try ourselves, to allow the Spirit to search and try us, to reveal if the things inside are the things outside. Are we seeking to cover it up and convince everybody else? Do we discredit the work, the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit, thinking that we can get away with it? Or would we see this as a warning that today, my devotion is to be unreserved, full devotion to the Savior who has lavished great, great grace on me. But look at what he says then to the entire watching world. This is an interesting text, isn't it? Verse 13, none of the rest dared to even join them, but they held them in esteem. All of the world not made up in the fifteen to 20,000 individuals are looking on and seeing what Yahweh is doing to his people inside, purifying for himself a people, and none of them dared even join them. But isn't that exactly where we go in the very next verse at what the Lord used to bring multitudes to himself. That the watching world outside saving faith would see how God is at work 
and that he has actually purified them such that they are living in community together, in unity, uh, in generosity, and in the, the power of their testimony is such that they couldn't stay away. They had high esteem for them, but they still came in multitudes, as it says, of both men and women. Now we have no idea how large this church is. Would that be said of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in San Antonio? That the watching world around us just simply cannot stay away because they see in us a genuine love and affection for our Savior and for one another. This centrality of the gospel brings us together to live life together. Would the would the would the watching world around us. I can't stop coming. I can't stay away because this is what I want as well. I got to say, when Jennifer and I first came, the Spirit's presence and work is tangible in the body known as Redeemer San Antonio. Thanks be to God. The Spirit is present and obviously at work, but also make no mistake this is exactly what the evil one would seek to use to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Opposition will come. It will come from the outside. But now we learn that opposition may even come from the inside. And so it is a warning for us today to search our own hearts and our own minds. I'll put it to you like this. If your deepest, darkest sin that you think no one in this building knows about were actually to be revealed. Now think about that. Whatever sin it is that you're harboring, if that sin were to be revealed, which of these would be your response? That you would cry out to the Savior to root that out of you, to advance in your sanctification as you mortify your sin, to put that sin to death, even when it rises its head again, because at my heart I want this rooted out. I want it gone. Or would you hope that God would lighten his standard because it's just really not that bad and other people are still a little bit blessed? Would that be your response? There's the difference between unreserved devotion. Doesn't mean I'm not wrestling with my sin. I am. But it's unreserved, unreserved devotion because I want him to root that out. Or reserved devotion I just want to lighten the standard. I want to make it easier because I want to hold on to what I want to hold on to. It's a difference between unreserved and reserved devotion. <laughs> My family, Jennifer is going to be the only one that understands the fullness of this closing illustration <laughs> because this is true. All of my family used to gather together for all of the birthdays that month. I'm talking cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, moms, dads, grandmothers, grandfather, 40, 30, 40 people. Every month we would gather at my grandmother's house and we would have a party for all of the birthdays that month. The, the month of October we had seven, seven birthdays. But we would gather together every, every, uh, every month and celebrate the party. We'd enjoy about half of the time as the party and then the next half would be planning the next party, the next month. 
Or telling stories. My family loved to retell stories. I have some siblings that still love to retell stories. And I learned this story that I'm about to tell you because every time we gathered, it was told over and over and over again. My grandmother, God bless her, rest her soul, found a large roll of white-backed wrapping paper covered in polka dots, green and pink and red, covered in polka. She bought this roll for 50 cents. And I know it was 50 cents because my family told me every single month that we gathered together. Because this paper didn't run out until I was in my teens. Every time we would gather together, you were marked, the, the marking of, grand, um, of Nani's present was right there in the center with this bright polka dotted paper. It was right in the middle of the stack. One particular birthday, my birthday, bring them to me, lay them all down at my feet. And they did, and there was that polka-dotted paper. Small this year. I thought, hmm, smaller than usual, but polka-dot, nanny and grandam. And now I know grandparents love to bring toys, give toys to their grandchildren. So I grabbed that one, the first one that I was going to open. I ripped the paper off, and there it was, right in the middle. Socks. Socks? What kind of kid wants socks for a birthday present? And I said something. I don't know what it was that I said, but every party thereafter, we would all bring our presents in, and we would say, not socks, <laughs> all the way till I, till I married. True, until I married, and we, uh, we, we moved away to go, go to seminary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here's the point, though. I digress. That paper right there in the middle of that stack screamed, screamed something that I wanted more than anything in the world. But when I opened it up, it was not what I thought it was going to be. Is that you? Is that you, loved one? If it is you, if you're living on the outside, something that's not on the inside, great grace awaits you today as we repent and we deal with this opposition because the watching world around us is coming because here is the only place where you find good news, testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious gospel that is ours. What a glorious gospel it is. And you have lavished it on us. And so, Father... We want, to, we want to wrestle with our sin. We want to deal with it. We want to mortify it, put it to death. So keep revealing it. Keep, keep uh, giving us more and more of your great grace, even as we live in great fear and awe that you are doing this work because you promised that you would purify your people without spot or blemish. Do it today for your glory's sake. Amen.